Winning comes in all shapes and sizes. It's different for everyone. One thing is certain, every day there's an opportunity for a win. Just like scratchers from the Virginia Lottery. Everyday grab-and-go, everyday giftable, everyday fun. It's where anticipation meets instant gratification. Like the new Virginia Lottery Scratcher High Roller Blackjack, with a chance to win up to 10 times your prize. Now, that's an everyday win. Drive to a retailer near you. Odds of winning any prize, 1 in 4.16. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row. Proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network. Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined. Not specific to 5G networks. Rappelez-vous que je suis Hubert, Saint-Hubert, Saint-Hubert Barbecue, et voilà ce point. Je ne sais pas qu'est-ce qu'il a dit. J'arrive à Radio-Canada pour l'ascenseur. Il y a un gars qui est J'ai dit, j'allais à quel étage, j'ai dit, au dernier, c'est pas un suicide. You're not supposed to take someone else's nostalgia. That's very bad. Six thirty PM, December fifteenth, nineteen eighty seven. A woman has locked her keys inside her vehicle, outside the medical clinic where she works in Laval, Quebec. The woman re-enters the clinic. She tells a nurse she's waiting for her husband to return, who she met by chance outside the vehicle. She then instructed him to take a taxi, presumably back home, to get a second set of keys. Eventually, the woman leaves the clinic and makes her way back out into the parking lot. The husband tells a slightly different story. The man says he met his wife after his car wouldn't start, which was parked a half mile away in another parking lot. He arrived to find his wife outside her car with the keys inside the ignition. The man then makes the half-mile trek back to the first lot to retrieve a second set of his wife's keys located in his own car. Thirty minutes later, the man bursts through the doors of the medical clinic, screaming that his wife is covered in blood. A doctor on duty rushes to her aid, only to find the 45-year-old woman dead, seatbelt fastened, slumped over in her vehicle. In the clinic parking lot behind a local dépanneur. This is who killed Teresa.
The notices on this case were so slight that I'll simply read them to you. A woman found dead in a car in Pont-Viaux, district of Laval, had been struck repeatedly on the head with a sharp object, police said yesterday. The victim was identified by Laval police as Michel Perron, 45, of Duvernay district. Sergeant Pierre Valois said police got a call during Tuesday night's snowstorm about a woman hemorrhaging in a car outside a dépanneur on Concord Boulevard. That's from the Gazette, and the blurb from La Presse in French wasn't much different, though it did add that she may have lost her keys in the snowstorm um, and that her purse was found a couple of meters from her car, possibly indicating a robbery as a motive. There's no further mention of this case in the press until 14 months later, when police charge her husband, Gilles Perron, with murder. The trial opens in 1989, two years after the incident. The motive suggested is that Gilles Perron was having an affair at the time of the murder and wanted to leave his wife. Gilles Perron was a 49-year-old television producer with Quebec's Radio-Canada, known for such television shows as Star d'un Soir. Think of it as sort of a Quebec American Idol of the 1990s. Uh, La Semaine Verte, think um, like environmental fair, like the nature of things. And the sitcom Dimanche Midi, think of any bland, really forgettable variety show. Gilles Perron was also quite the Lothario. A brisk two months after his wife's murder, he moved in with a Quebec chicken restaurant heiress. This incurred the wrath of the chicken heiress's brother, who decided to see to matters himself. Jean-Pierre Léger, then vice president of the chicken restaurant franchise Saint-Hubert Barbecue, recently its CEO, was so incensed by his sister Claire Léger's affair with Gilles Perrin and by the lack of police effort that he began conducting his own murder investigation. Leger placed a full-page ad in newspapers in Montreal, Laval, and Sherbrooke, offering a reward of $100,000 for any information that would lead to an arrest for the murder of Michel Perron. This led to the discovery that Gilles Perron had a mistress in Quebec's eastern townships. Monique Sirois. Madame Sirois kept a diary, and in this diary she revealed that Gilles Perron was intending to leave his wife and make his 12-year affair with Sirois a permanent arrangement. But 
After Michel Perrin's murder, Gilles Perrin dumped Sirois and began a relationship with the chicken man's sister, Claire Léger. The diary provided the motive police desperately needed. With it, they were able to charge Gilles Perrin with the murder of his wife, Michelle. At the trial, Gilles Perrin's story didn't add up. Michelle Perrin was found strapped in her seatbelt, slumped in the driver's seat of the Mercury Lynx hatchback. Perron had received eight deep knife wounds to her head that almost completely obliterated her face. One blow to the head was so devastating, it dislodged one of her dentures, which was found on the floor of the car in a pool of blood. The blow that killed her severed an artery in her throat. Pathologists testified Michelle had no defensive wounds on her hands or arms. While a police photo showed no keys in the ignition, the doctor that first attended Michelle testified that the keys were in fact in the ignition. Further, a nurse from the clinic observed Gilles Perrin emerging from the driver's side of the vehicle. The door was found ajar after police had been called to the scene. Later, Gilles Perrin told investigators that his wife might have had a second set of keys to her car in her pocket, though no additional set of keys were ever recovered. Gilles Perrin stated it took him 30 minutes to make the return trip from his car to his wife's and back, Testimony revealed on foot the trek took a police officer approximately 18 minutes round trip. Perrin could not account for the missing 12 minutes. Gilles Perrin lied to his first mistress, Monique Sirois, telling her he was in Ottawa at the time of the murder and had been unaware of his wife's death. He lied further when he explained to Sirois that his frequent absences were the result of his being an agent with the RCMP's security branch in Ottawa. Perrin ended their relationship by telling her he was a homosexual and had found a male lover. After her funeral, Perrin tore up every single photo of his wife. Exactly one month after her murder, he began the process of collecting his wife's life insurance. The various policies were valued at $72,000. At the time of her death, Gilles Perrin was in debt to a degree exceeding $68,000. Perrin's relationship with Claire Léger, the Saint-Hubert barbecue lady, was discovered when a neighbor of Claire Léger observed Gilles Perrin emerging from the chicken heiress's apartment in the spring of 1988. 
Perrin then disclosed to this neighbor that he had moved in with Claire. At this point, he launched into a lengthy explanation of how he had found his ex-wife slumped in the back seat of the car, it was a hatchback, and how he, quote, took her into his arms and took her into the clinic, end quote. Gilles Perron entered that clinic alone when he burst in shouting, my wife is covered in blood. The neighbor recalled that Perron insisted on giving a very grisly detailed account of his wife's murder. In the weeks leading up to the trial, as early as 1988, even before his arrest, Perron was planning to write a book about the murder and had contacted an associate to work as his ghost writer. In closing arguments, the Crown argued that Perron attempted to stage the perfect murder, disguising the scene to make it look like a robbery. On December 22, 1989, Gilles Perrin was convicted of first-degree murder in the brutal stabbing death of his wife and mother of his three children, Michel Perrin. At trial, Perrin appeared stunned by the verdict, which came after four days of deliberation by the jury. Gilles Perrin was sentenced to life imprisonment with no possibility of parole for a minimum of 25 years. That's it. That's the that's part one of this uh, extremely fucked up case, um, and uh, <laughs> there's no one really in this affair that I'm I'm admiring so far, nor should <laughs> should you. Uh, before going forward, um, perhaps a look back at the history of the Quebec chicken franchise uh, Saint Hubert barbecue. It it doesn't really have anything to do with the case, but it tells you a lot about how uh, power operates in the province of Quebec. Um, from very humble beginnings Saint -Hubert on Saint Hubert Street in Montreal, uh, Saint Hubert Barbecue was always a mom and pop outfit founded in 1951 by Hélène and René Léger. Um, Saint Hubert started uh, as just a chicken stand um, but with its uh, secret barbecue sauce and this fleet of yellow Volkswagen Beetles by 1965, they pioneered home delivery service at no extra charge in Canada. With Canada's centennial in 1967, Expo 67, uh, and Montreal hosting the World's Fair, the Legers, uh, Legers saw an opportunity and they decided to open two restaurants at Expo. Um, 
And recall that Expo had opening day crowds of over 300,000 people. Um, it was a crush that summer. And, and they used these radio and television ads with the, the catchy jingle, uh, ring, 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 put, put, put. Say, you better barbecue. Uh, then the 1970s and the 80s saw a period of, of rapid expansion uh, for the chicken franchise. And, and I, I have to tell you, people are fanatic. Certain people are fanatic about this restaurant in Quebec. And we'll kind of get to that. So, uh, so they introduce a, a single dial-in number for all of Montreal phone numbers, uh, which was groundbreaking. They branched into an ill-conceived venture of upscale Italian restaurants for a time. These were eventually sold uh, to um, the American Giorgio restaurants. Uh, they began an expansion into Ontario and the Maritimes. Um, uh, by this time, even uh, Céline Dion is appearing in uh, their TV spots. Uh, eventually, times and tastes change. They try a, a, a series of resto bar lounges, you know, kind of upscale um, chicken lounges <laughs> that, that fail. Uh, they never really establish a foothold outside of Quebec. And by 1992, um, that first store at 6555 uh, St. Hubert Street closes because it's losing money. In 2016, St. Hubert Barbecue is sold to its rival, Cara Foods, the owner of Ontario's um, Swiss Chalet chicken. Now, um, as I say, I, look, I've never eaten at St. Hubert uh, Barbecue. We were always like an A&W family growing up. But I've, I have had Swiss Chalet, and it is awful. Um, and... In, for Southerners, people in the Southern U.S., it's it's like the culinary equivalent of the K&W cafeteria, right? It, it's like old people food. Um, and just to look at it, I mean, no, no American, no self-respecting American would ever call that barbecue. I mean, I mean, if I brought that slop to East Carolina or Kansas City, or Texas, uh, I'd be roasted on a pig spit. Um, all of these, these, these say, you know, stick with what you know. Americans, you know, don't fuck with poutine, and Quebec don't don't fuck with the pig, you know, unless unless you're the guys, you know, at Pied du Cochon or something uh, like that. Um, stay out of the pit. Um, recently, um, uh, and a well enamored restaurant in in downtown Montreal called the Barbie Barn. There's actually two locations. There's one in downtown Montreal near Dorchester, René Lévesque. Uh, and there's one on the West Island that's still there. The, the downtown one closed and everyone was very, very teary-eyed about this. What will we do without the Barbie Barn? Again, you know, ostensibly barbecued chicken and ribs, just, just the worst shit uh, ever. Overpriced, um, I, I mean, the, the decor never changed since the 70s. You know, it looked like the Ponderosa Steakhouse um, uh, it meets the Stepford Wives or something like that. It's just hideous. 
hideous place. But again, there are people who are fanatic about it. I mean, if I say that too loudly in Montreal circles, I will be roasted on a spit. I mean, how dare you? That's our tradition. That's that's our nostalgia. You're fucking with our nostalgia. Uh, it's 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 not good, man. I, good riddance. I you know, I never like to see a piece of Montreal go, but in this case, I'll make an exception. Uh, you know, my dad, who did a lot of business lunches in Montreal uh, in the day, I asked him about the closing of the Barbie Barn, and he said he went in once, once, you know. One of our business lunch, he, and, he, and he never went back. You know, I understand if you're at the forum seeing a concert and the concert's over and you're fucking wasted and you want to get a plate of ribs, okay, I'll make an exception. But I, it's not going to be a destination. I'm not going to save up for, you know, a week to go. Honey, we can finally... We, We've we've scrimped all week. We can finally go to the Barbie barn, or or to <laughs> or to Saint Hubert Barbecue. Saint Hubert, Saint Hubert. <laughs> now, um, Saint Hubert, Saint Hubert, Saint Hubert. No, I've never been. The the chicken mascot. Now we we can't leave this tour of memory lane without discussing the mascot. And and actually this is really a fascinating story in itself. The Saint Hubert barbecue mascot, the logo, is this cartoon rooster. And if you see shades of Woody Woodpecker, that's that's not a coincidence. Um that the original St. Hubert mascot was designed by a guy named Jack Dunham, uh, an animator who worked on the early Oswald the Rabbit shorts for uh, Walter Lenz, and uh, he later joined Disney Studios, where he contributed to Snow White, Bambi, Alice in Wonderland, Pinocchio, Fantasia, um, among many, many others. Um, Dunham also created some of the St. Hubert's earliest television commercials, animated commercials. He's, he's an American. He was born in 1910 in Bismarck, North Dakota. He ended up in Canada making commercials for Dow Beer, Belvedere Cigarettes, Lowney Chocolates in Toronto and Montreal. And um, Dunham's life ended uh, rather tragically on the, on the streets of Montreal. Down on his luck, um, the Gazette columnist, uh, Mike Boone, uh, many, many people know uh, Mike Boone for his hockey coverage of the Montreal Canadiens. Boone was asked to do a profile piece on Dunham and his misfortunes. Uh, And according to Boone, in, in 2006, Dunham and his wife of 51 years, the former fashion model, uh, Dorothy Stewart, were evicted from their St. Mark Street apartment. Uh, and the two ended up at the San Luc uh, Hospital while social services searched for a new place for them. And Dunham was 96 years old at the time. And he died on August 16th, 2008. And where he finally ended up is not known.
Don't fuck with the chicken man. The defeat in 2016, which saw St. Hubert's uh, sale to the Ontario rival Cara Foods, was the ending, the culmination of a battle that had been uh, waged for nearly 40 years. In April 1979, in an article titled Chicken War Starting to Heat Up, the the Gazette revealed that uh, part of St. Hubert's expansion efforts were to counter an attack by Cara Foods, which was planning to spend over $25 million to set up 25 Swiss chalet barbecue franchises in Quebec. Cara at this time also owned the hamburger restaurant Harvey's, which at this time was also in a fast food war with uh, its rival McDonald's. Saint-Hubert countered with its own expansion, though it was never revealed how it managed to uh, finance this expansion. Uh, uh, where the family got their money is, uh, remains somewhat of a mystery. With uh, plans to add, they, they plan to add their, their own 24 or 25 franchises um, uh, by the end of 1979. A Saint-Hubert executive scoffed at Kara's efforts. We're number one in chicken. We're the top here, and we're going to remain the leader. <laughs> the rivalry even extended south of the border. In, in February 1979, Kara Foods opened its first Swiss chalet restaurant in Fort Lauderdale. Three months later, St. Hubert countered, opening a St. Hubert fine dining establishment within miles of the Swiss Chalet location. Presumably, these were vanity restaurants uh, for the winter snowbird family's executives to enjoy while they were escaping the harsh Canadian winters. And um, here's a photo of Helen Leger and her son, Jean-Pierre. Uh, of course, all of this is on, on online. I'll post. There's a lot of great visuals for this uh, episode on Michel Perron. This episode is about Michel Perron. <laughs> we, we've just taken a detour. But uh, to check out the, the photos and articles, etc., uh, go to theresellor.com, T-H-E-R-E-S-A-A-L-L-O-R-E.com. So, um, so it's, it's of Helene Leger and her son Jean-Pierre. Jean-Pierre, remember, this is the overly protective uh, brother of the diary writing Claire Leger. Uh, more of her coming. So, and, and they're receiving the key to the city of Fort Lauderdale after their grand opening in June 1979. And the caption reads, this is, uh, this is the matriarch speaking, Helene Leger. Thank you for your warm welcome and acceptance of our unique roasted chicken. Thank you for the opportunity extended to us to introduce St. Hubert Roasted Chicken to South Florida. We promise to be good neighbors and look forward to a long association with our many new friends. Today, that American flagship location sits vacant. It last housed a vegan, vegetarian place called Sublime, which was shuttered in 2018.
Now, though, though the mother, Helen Alleger, was president of the chicken business, daily operations were controlled by the brother and sister tag team of Jean-Pierre and Claire. In 1982, the company made it official with an announcement to the media of the top-level appointments by Helen Leger, president of Jean-Pierre Leger and Claire Leger, both of whom have been associated with the company, each assuming the title of assistant to the president as part of a reorganization oriented towards future growth. So they become co-leaders, the brother and sister. Um, and the announcement goes out on to point out that uh, Rotisserie Saint-Hubert now operates 69 outlets in Quebec, Ontario, Alberta, Alberta, and Florida. A profile of Claire Leger in the Gazette in 1982 reveals that she got her start working as a waitress at Saint-Hubert and later went on to become a restaurant manager. After studying business and taking time off to have her son, she returned to the company and focused on the administration, identifying her brother as the risk-taker and more like her father, René. She was a cultured woman. She studied art and the piano, uh, taking time during her hiatus to take up sculpture and the flute. And Clara Leger was also a bit of a practical joker, often playing pranks on the workers, but also a tough executive. And this is her from this article. When I was in school, women in my kind of job did not exist in Quebec. It was not done. It's still rare that women are given a chance outside a family firm. The 1980s will show whether women will be able to make it in the market place. Later that year, Claire Leger addressed the Montreal Chamber of Commerce. This is a short piece, so I'll just, I'll just read it. It's a puff piece written in the papers but it reveals a lot about the Leger character. When it comes to backing business, don't be chicken. <laughs> oh. <laughs> when it comes to backing business, don't be chicken, Quebecers told. <laughs> I'm not going to get through this. <laughs> All right. All right, this is, the, this is the good one. If Quebec society esteemed businessmen as much as it esteems politicians, professional people, and its popular singers, then many small Quebec businessmen would be on the way to becoming big businessmen. So says Claire Leger, vice president and boss lady, of her family's St. Hubert barbecue chicken restaurant chain, which now has annual sales of 110 million, branches in Quebec, Ontario, and Fort Lauderdale, and plans for a big expansion in the U.S. market. Leger was addressing the weekly luncheon meeting of Montreal's Chamber of Commerce. The menu? Scallops in white sauce and Brussels sprouts. <laughs> oh. 
There are tens of thousands of entrepreneurs in Quebec, she said, able to grow as the Léger family has done. If only they benefited from a climate of encouragement and optimism. She attributes the success of the St. Hubert rotisseries to the use of TV advertising as well as the QSC, Quality Service Cleanliness. Oh, God. <laughs> those, are those. those of you who are, are like old enough to remember totally, total quality management, like, you know, you're just like groaning now. But also to the willingness of her older generation, her parents, to give the new generation, herself and her brother, its head. They could have been satisfied with 17 profitable restaurants. Instead, in the 1970s, they and her brother built another 49 outlets, 10 of which are outside Quebec. The firm now has 5,000 employees. One challenge has been to bring into the firm senior executives who are not members of the family and to learn from them. The five Toronto restaurants are now among the most profitable of the group, she said. In expanding, she and her brother considered many scenarios and retained the most aggressive, which has paid off, Leger said. <laughs> I, 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 I doubt it was just hard scrapple encouragement and optimism that built the Leger's chicken empire. We, we never really learn where, again, their financing comes from, but it no doubt, oh, there's birdies. Um, but no doubt um, it saw some muscle from uh, elite power families of Quebec, and we're getting to that, for, for like some idea about just how powerful the Leger family had become. Listen to this announcement from the Gazette in 1984. Um, it's ostensibly to hail Claire Leger's appointment as director to uh, Laurentian Mutual Insurance, but it goes on to reveal that she is already serving on the boards of Hydro-Quebec, uh, personally appointed by Quebec's premier, René Lévesque, Radio Quebec, then a provincial te television station similar to TV Ontario, the Montreal Chamber of Commerce, and the publishing and printing giant Quebecor, personally appointed by Pierre Pelledot. Today, Quebecor is run by Pelledot's son, Pierre Carl. Quebecor is one of the most dominating media forces in the province, with controlling interests in the Journal de Montréal, TVA, Videotron, Cano, Cube Radio, and Archambault Books and Music. I think the murder of Michel Perron needs to be considered in the context of the Quebec rich and powerful. And for me, there's, there's something very Shakespearean in this story. There's something very measure for measure. There's something very Claudio and Isabella. Claire sits on the board of the media giant Quebecor. So, as we've said, Journal du Montréal and TVA, etc. 
And who are their rivals in Quebec? In terms of newspapers and television, that would be La Presse and Radio-Canada. And who works for Radio-Canada? Gilles Perrin. Take a look at this three-quarter page ad for Hydro-Quebec from 1996 in the Gazette. And if, if you're listening, I'll just describe it to you. It's, it's a portrait of JP, uh, his smug face glaring at the reader with a plate of St. Hubert in front of him, the barbecue, the fries, special sauce at his side. And the headline reads, Jean-Pierre Léger keeps a close eye on everything he consumes. Now, the ad is, I get it, it's about Hydro-Quebec and how he likes to keep energy costs down. But I also don't think we're just talking about chicken. There is something downright creepy about the Leger Eye of Sauron surveying the landscape of all he consumes. By the end of the century, JP had bought out his sister and he was now sole shareholder of Saint-Hubert. And his sister's welfare would definitely fall within that landscape. The Legers were not going to be made to look foolish by some Radio Canada gigolo. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network. Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. The, the machinations of Jean-Pierre Léger in the police investigation of Michel Perron's murder went well beyond offering a $100,000 reward. Prior to becoming a police suspect, Jean-Pierre Léger secretly met with Gilles Perron in a Laval hotel room. Now, this was in 1988, just months before the trial. Perron, by this time, was engaged to his sister, Claire. And at the meeting, Léger urged Perron to break it off with Claire, stating, it would be best if you left her. Perron quickly retorted, you can forget about it. Unknown to Perron, the entire conversation was recorded by Laval police, with Léger permitting them to bug his room. A week before the trial started, 
Gilles Perrin filed a $1.1 million lawsuit against Jean-Pierre Léger, charging he was the victim of a smear campaign. During the trial, in a dramatic fashion, Claire Léger called off the engagement one week before their wedding. And it's, it's interesting that all through that 1989 trial, the Quebec media refused to name the Légers or their business, only ever mentioning that Gilles Perron was engaged to the heiress of a restaurant chain. When you're rich and powerful, you can manage to keep your name out of the papers. When the Légers were eventually mentioned, it was only in the most delicate fashion. Newspapers outside of Quebec, like the Ottawa Sun and Calgary Herald, were only too happy to name Saint-Hubert and the Légers. The rest, we know, Gilles Perrin is found guilty of murder and sentenced to life in prison. And that's the end of it, right? Or is it? Gilles Perrin filed an appeal. It was at this second trial that everything began to unravel. Because for all their power, for all their connections and influence, for all their intelligence and determination, there's one thing the Légers did not account for. The incompetence of the Laval police. Donuts. They're for the police. Now, there were a, a number of things wrong with the Laval police investigation that came up in the second trial, and I'll just highlight a few. Uh, police attempted to interview Gilles Perron's 15-year-old son without prior knowledge or permission from Perron. When Perron intervened and told detectives to go through his lawyers, the Laval police charged him with obstructing a police investigation. Police never bothered to conduct knock-and-talks with residents in nearby rows of homes who had a clear view of the parking lot where Michel Perron was murdered. They also never bothered to review the video camera footage from the adjacent Dépanneur, nor did they conduct interviews with patrons and staff of a nearby brasserie and strip club. The police fingerprint technician had learned his trade through a mail-order correspondence course, the sort of thing in that area you find on the back of a book of matches. Police also failed to take blood samples from the interior of the vehicle. Finally, when police conducted their preliminary interview with Perron, they failed to turn on the tape recorder. For these and many, many more reasons, Perron's defense attorney called the process a mockery of justice. Jules Perrin was acquitted on May 15, 1992. One of the reasons he was set free was the sudden appearance of a surprise witness who came forward and stated that she saw two suspicious characters in the parking lot a half hour prior to Michel Perrin's murder. 
Despite the fact that when asked to describe the weather that evening, the witness said that she could not recall. There was a very memorable snowstorm the evening of December 15th, 1987. But the main explanation for the acquittal were the police blunders. As they so often do, the Quebec police asked for forgiveness, promising reforms, yet nothing changed. A year after the acquittal, the Laval Police Union, ever resourceful to exploit an opportunity, had the nerve to claim that the explanation for their incompetence with the Perron case was because the Laval murder squad was overworked and understaffed. And I have the article here, the, the, the article, the headline is Murder Squad Overworked During Perron Case. Detectives. It should come as no surprise that playing out all during the events after the murder and the two trials was the unending contract negotiations spearheaded by Laval Police Brotherhood, the Union, which involved strong-arm tactics like stoppage in giving out speeding or parking tickets and refusal to answer service calls. There's plenty of blame to spread around here, and we should not exclude uh, bureaucrats, the fonctionnaires. Indeed, the Laval force had been working without a contract since December 31st, 1987. That's a slim two weeks after the Perron murder. So if you do the math in your head, barely that's barely enough time to canvas a neighborhood, to interview witnesses, let alone process blood samples. By the summer of 1991, they were still without a long-term contract, with the Laval chief and police union head exchanging barbs about understaffing and public safety in the papers. Uh, by the way, at that time, Laval had the highest paid police officers in the province. The police are doing their work to the best of their abilities, but their efforts are being sabotaged by the fact that the department is understaffed and it takes hours to answer calls of less serious nature. So whinged Brotherhood President André Nadon. Chief Jean-Marc Aurel countered, It's evident we could do more with more men, but citizens have no cause for concerns. We have an excellent police force doing a good job. And metrics um, backed up. Uh, the chief's claim. Um, in 1991, Laval did indeed have a very low crime rate. Things didn't improve when later that summer, Collinaire uh, Inc. announced a new ad campaign for their Joe Louis snack cakes, with posters emphatically proclaiming, Donuts! They're for the police! <laughs> the the ads were quickly removed from bus shelters and subway stations, and there's a great photo of one Le ben Benang, c'est pour la police. Uh, uh, there's, there's, there's one in the, the Barry Yukon um, subway station. Uh, <laughs> uh, I won't go too much into it, but um, I mean, many, um, to give you some context, many police at the time thought it was funny. Uh, some of the most emphatic, I think this, the Sartre de Quebec, if I recall, didn't give a shit, uh, nor did the SPVM. 
um, the most vocal against it were was the Laval police union head Nadon. <laughs> so you have these ads in the summer, and then by Christmas, by December 24th, 1991, there's still no contract. And the union orders police officers to ignore traffic infractions. Some officers are ordered to, quote, continue to do nothing as they have been since mid-month. I would say continue to do nothing as you've done for a decade, but, you know, that's just me. Despite these pressure tactics, um, City of Laval administration states that there will be no disciplinary action taken against anyone. Of course, no one's ever punished for these things. Um, so the situation continued like this into the new year, and in July of 1992, um, the union rejected a contract offer and continued its dereliction of duties. By, by the fall of 92, the parties finally signed a four-year labor contract. But before that, uh, Marie-Ève Larivière, a young child, was found murdered in a Laval rail yard. At the end of 1992, La, La Rivière's murder was still unsolved, and uh, Laval police were now facing two lawsuits. Um, uh, Juperon filed another lawsuit for a million dollars for investigative negligence against the police in the matter of uh, Michel Perron's murder. And Laval was also facing a $400,000 suit from the family of Daniel André, uh, the family were claiming they had to conduct their own investigation in the matter of Daniel's death. And uh, Gilles Perrin, not knowing when to sit down, um, was now also calling for a royal commission to look into the injustice brought upon him in the matter of his wife's murder. Despite the new contract that fall, union leader André Nadon continued to grouse, claiming the Laval force now needed even more officers, including its own SWAT and electronic surveillance units. And so it goes, right? Um, they continue, they'll use any opportunity, uh, any challenge um, to create an advantage for expansion. It's very dangerous to forget. In September 2000, Gilles Perron lost his lawsuit against the Laval police and Crown prosecutor in his wife's murder trial. Throughout the 1990s, Perron conducted a smear campaign against that prosecutor, Yves Berthium. Um, this had a great impact on his personal and professional life. 
Perron was eventually ordered to pay $260,000 to the prosecuting attorney for defamation of character. A month later, his former employer, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, long having parted ways with him, Gilles Perron declared bankruptcy. Gilles Perron died at the age of 75 on Saturday, December 5th, 2015, after a long illness, almost 28 years to the day of Michel Perron's murder in that parking lot behind a Laval dépanneur. Over those 28 years, he and his family always maintained his innocence. Gilles never killed my sister. I always said it, remarked Nicole Valiquette, the sister of Michel Perron. Gilles Perron always vowed to find the real assassin. In a 1995 interview with André Riga of the Gazette, he was emphatic. I never, never gave up on finding the real killer. But there were never, ever any other real suspects. Not those alleged winter storm assailants stabbing her eight times in the face for purse money when it would have been much simpler to simply snatch the purse and run away. There was only Gilles Perron. In that same article, it was disclosed that the Montreal Urban Police, the SPVM, had been chosen to conduct a full review of the Laval Force's investigative practices. Montreal Police Chief Jacques Duchesneau remarked that he was unaware of another occasion when one police force's homicide squad was asked to re-examine the investigation of another. Curiously, an article on the same page of that edition revealed that the Sarté du Québec had just suspended four officers as part of an investigation into evidence tampering. This was the beginning of the unraveling of the Maddox affair. Among many things, Maddox became the mother of all internal probes by the police of its own, exposing police corruption at a systemic level and ultimately leading to the Poitras Commission's full-blown public inquiry. With the exception of Madame Perron, there are no innocents in any of this. The behavior of all parties is equally appalling and reprehensible. Gilles Perron, the légers, the newspapers, the police. If you're rich and powerful in Quebec, you can get away with anything. If you're a léger, you can say anything, you can do anything. You have all the resources at your command to influence an outcome. If you're a pelido, you can amplify or silence a voice with impunity. There is no consequence. This is who killed Teresa.
Today's story comes from a listener, Joanne, who brought it to my attention. I'd never heard of it before. Um, found it really interesting and uh, kind of filled in some holes. Some of the reporters uh, mentioned today uh, their stories, René Laurent, Albert Noel, and uh, Andy Riga. You can follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, we're on Facebook and uh, Instagram. Uh, just search Teresa or it'll come up one way or another. Um, best place to find most information is on the website, teresaallor.com, T-H-E-R-E-S-A-A-L-L-O-R-E, point com. As I said, lots of, vis- lots, lots of visuals this time. Also some video clips put together. There's a short documentary, French documentary on Gilles Baron. By short, I mean like maybe two minutes, but um, again, visuals. Uh, also clips um, from some of his uh, Radio-Canada shows, uh, Star d'une soir, uh, Les Demons Midi. And I put up some uh, Saint-Hubert barbecue clips, uh, the publicity for Saint-Hubert, Saint-Hubert. Uh, it's all there. Put, put, put. Uh, oui, moi, je suis Hubert. Saint-Hubert. Uh, that's all for today. Um, Hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, it's been Who Killed Teresa. I'm your host, John Elor. Have yourselves a great, great day. If you love scratches from the Virginia Lottery, you'll love the High Roller Blackjack Scratcher with a chance to win up to 10 times your prize. Look for it at your favorite Virginia Lottery retailer. In fact, you can drive there right now. Now that's an everyday win. Odds of winning any prize, 1 in 4.16. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row. Proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network. Verizon. Best and most reliable based on root metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined. Not specific to 5G networks.